second thing is you'll notice that there's some bread lying around the room. Um, and we're dealing with food for five weeks, which is awesome. Who doesn't like food? Um, so I have a weird motto, and some of my friends from my youth ministry days know this. Uh, my like life motto, which is, I shouldn't say this as a pastor, but I'm going to say it anyway, is go places and eat things. Um, it is just true, so it's best not to hide it. Um, I've lived by that motto for a long time, and like, I'm starting to show it now, like putting on a bunch of weight. Um, but the bread here is, is just go get some at some point today. Because what we're looking at is we're going to be looking at this bread or food as a sign of God's abundance. This is a biblical sign of God's abundance. Today we might say money or some other things, uh, but in biblical times, food, food was that image. So we're going to start with uh, fish eyes and a plate full of cassava tube tubers. Anybody ever had a cassava root before? Susan Cottonwood, but she's in Nicaragua right now. She would have had one because that's where I had one. Um, we're going to look at this miracle that it's told in all four Gospels. It's a food miracle. And then we're going to kind of finish by hopefully opening up our hearts, our hands, and our tables. So that's where we're going. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit as the scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, that we might hear what it is that you say to us with joy today. Amen. Amen. So I, I went to Nicaragua years ago, and so I had this memorable, I was trying to think about memorable meals that I had, which there have been a lot, trust me, uh, but which one was right for this occasion. And I, I was in Nicaragua, I was with this large group of pastors, almost completely Spanish-only um, and my Spanish, I got by. I was passable. Um, and this is not a wealthy group by any means, right? And so rule number one with food in Nicaragua, that I, and I was taught this right when we got there, rule number one was finish what's on your plate, right? Like my dad taught me that when I was a kid. Some parents, that's a big deal. Um, but in Nicaragua, it's a really big deal, and it makes sense in cultures where food is not easy to come by, right? Not everyone has access to the kind of food that I was about to eat in this meal, and so they brought the plates out. There's probably 20 people seated around this big oval table. And they brought the food, the plates out, and they set them down. It was this giant fish, like eyeballs, scales, fins, the whole, the whole thing. Like the thing was like staring at me when they put the plate down. Um, I was super uncomfortable, but I love fish. So I'm like, all right, I can deal with that. And then there were these cassava roots, right? They're like big tubers, like the size of a giant baked potato. And there's three of them piled on this plate with the fish. And I looked at the plate, and I was like, this is more food. Like, I'm a big eater. This is more food than I could ever hope to eat. But then I tasted it, and it just didn't work for me. Like, those cassava roots weren't working for me. And rule number one in Nicaragua is you finish what's on your plate. And wow, did I try. All right? I tried, and I tried, and it was just this one painful, slow bite at a time trying to finish these roots. Now, the matriarch at the table, 80-some-year-old woman, ran this church community in this town. She gets up from the head of the table and she starts making her way to examine everybody's plate. And I'm three quarters of the way around the table so I know I got a little time, man. I am trying to knock those things down like crazy. And I, there's no hope. I start sweating it out. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. Like, I'm not kidding. I mean, these things are going through my mind. I'm like, I'm in serious trouble. And she gets right before she's two people away and I, it's over. I put my fork down. I'm like, I'm done. The guy next to me, his name was Miguel. The reason I remember this is because he saved me. He took my plate, took his fork, he scraped the three cassava roots off my plate onto his. She comes up to him. She examines his plate. 
she gets right in his face, she takes her finger and she shakes it right in his face and she says, me, yell. Like that. And I was like, for me, yell. She was so disappointed, I get saved, which was really, really cool. And this is the story I thought about when I thought about this number one sign or symbol of God's abundance in the Bible is food, right? And I'm not kidding when I said I was ashamed. Like, this should make us instantly think about people who have food and people who don't have food, right? I have an abundance of food. I have so much food, I don't know what to do with it. And yet there are all kinds of people around us that don't have enough to eat, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So in today's text, Jesus is going to feed a multitude of poor people, right? Which raises the question, who is this Jesus that feeds these multitudes? Who is this person? And that's kind of the question that today's story is going to get at. Here we go. John 6, 1-21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was uh, following him because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get just a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? It's a big question. Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples to gather up the fragments uh, left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, started to cross the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because the strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. We're the Lord. Two different stories. They're like two streams merging into one river, right? And the key is going to be like, can we put these two things together? I'm going to try, and you can tell me how I did later. The starting point is this. This is another Exodus story unfolding. We have to know that right at the beginning. Who is the hero of the Exodus story? Somebody? Moses, okay? And so the context of this chapter is set by the previous chapter. The previous chapter was dealing with Jesus' authority. At the end of chapter 5, we're reminded that the Jews of Jesus' day are expecting a prophet like Moses to come and deliver them from oppression. And so that sets the stage for our text today. 
a large crowd is following Jesus. They think they found this one that they've been looking for. They witnessed the signs, the miracles that he'd been performing. They're impressed by him. And so John gives us this really important detail that none of the other Gospels do. John says that the Passover was near, right? He's the only one that says that. Passover celebrates, of course, Israel's deliverance from slavery. It symbolizes freedom and relief from suffering and oppression. And so quickly, the similarities between the Exodus story and the one we just read, they're pretty apparent when you think about it. Both stories offer a salvation by sea. Both stories have a divine feeding. Both stories, there's an overabundance of food. So we already know that's symbolizing, right, God's provision, God's abundance. There's more food than can even be eaten. Both Moses and Jesus go up the mountain to be alone with God, and so we have these similarities, right? And so the crowds that are following Jesus, they're not dumb. Like they, they see these things, they piece them together. They make the connection between Jesus and Moses, but shockingly, right? Like they miss the point, like they always do. This is scripture. So this hungry, large crowd has followed Jesus out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus uses this moment, this is just fascinating to me, like he uses this moment to search for faith in his disciples. And he puts a question to Philip. Where are we going to buy bread for all these people? And Jesus is probably hoping that Philip is going to answer the question something like this. Like, you know what, Jesus, I'm not really sure where we're going to do this, but we've been hanging out with you a while now, and we know that you've been able to handle every single problem so far that's come up. And so probably you can handle this one too. That's the answer that he hopes to get. That's not the answer that he gets. There's 5,000 plus people there, uh, there's no grocery store anywhere around, and so Jesus is looking for the smallest trace of faith in his disciples. Just something that he can work with. And then Philip, being from Bethsaida of Galilee, he knows the area, he's like, yeah, Jesus, there's, there's nothing, we got nothing. Not only do we, we got nothing, but we don't have the money to go buy it, even if we did have something, even if something was close by, we, we can't buy enough to feed this crowd. And so, of course, he's focusing only on the problems, the issues. We never do that, right? Look at something and like just focus on the problems. Um, and so he looks at this seemingly insurmountable problem, and he sees only the problem. He doesn't see any possible solution. And who's standing right in front of him? The miracle-working Jesus that he has just witnessed multiple times performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and he has no idea where the solution might be in this difficult situation. And so for grading the disciples, Philip gets an F. But Andrew, Peter's brother, he sort of passes, right? He's kind of got a little glimmer of hope. He shows the tiniest amount of faith. He's found a boy among them who has five loaves and two fish. So he brings him. Now, most of you know that I did. We were just talking about this with someone up front. I despise math. Like, I'm horrible. We were talking about the escape room. That's what it was. And we, Michael's really good at math. And so Michael solves the math problems for the family. Like, my kids do the same thing for me. Um, and so here's, here's gospel math, right? I love gospel math. This is way better than the real thing. This is the math here in our passage. Five plus two plus Jesus equals 5,000 plus. Like, I can, I'm down with that math. <laughs> to me, this makes more sense than the math that we grew up doing in school. Um, but this is like math to get excited about, in my mind, right? And so Jesus has, this is, I, I, tell me if anyone has ever thought about this before. Last night, I was reviewing this again. And he says, Jesus has them sit down on the grass. But it says, not just the grass, it says there was a lot of grass. Like, we just blow right by that. I was like thinking about that. I'm like, what if there was a lot of grass? 
Who pastures on grass? Sheep. Sheep looking for a shepherd. We watch this. We've been watching this stuff unfold the last couple of weeks. We've been comparing and contrasting the good shepherd, Jesus, with Herod, the bad shepherd, to you. Here, he's John. He makes a big deal. It's the detail is there for a reason. There's a lot of grass. And there's a lot of people. And I've never noticed that before. The good shepherd is once again about to feed the sheep. Okay? And so he gives thanks for the bread. That should remind us of something. Because this is John's Lord's Supper. For those of us that know the Gospels, Lord's Supper is not in the Gospel of John. This is it. This is Jesus' moment. And so he serves it to the crowd. Um, and there was so much left over that they had 12 baskets to collect. How many of you enjoy cooking? Anybody? Now, this part's debatable. How many of the people that like to cook or eat, this is fair, if you just like to eat too. Do we like leftovers or not? Leftovers people, raise your hand. Non-leftover people, raise your hand. Okay, Jeremy. Dustin, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that hand was going to be coming. Um, right. So, in the Exodus story, here's the thing. There are two, the leftovers are dealt with differently. In the Exodus story, we might remember... Uh, there were these strict instructions. The leftovers were not to be gathered up so that the Israelites would learn how to trust in God for their daily bread. Not here. Jesus wanted none of it to go to waste. It means something. We'll come back to it hopefully in a minute. The crowds, they're impressed. They believe that Jesus is this prophet like Moses and uh, that was expected. And that this is a strong language, right? The plan was to come and take Jesus by force. But just think about that for a moment. When you hear Jesus and by force in the same sentence, you should automatically say, something is wrong with this picture. Something is definitely wrong. And so Jesus, of course, just slips away and he disappears into the mountains. It's the second half of the story that kind of illuminates uh, the question of who Jesus really is. Right? And so... The disciples, they get into the boat without Jesus. You ever wondered what was going on? Like, did Jesus set up a plan to meet him somewhere or whatever? Yeah. You really don't know. Um, darkness, wind, waves set the stage for the second miracle. And like, as if the disciples weren't scared enough being caught in the storm, they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, who is not going to be scared at this point? All right? Now, like, I was thinking about this. I'm like, how do you make it? How do we even understand what they were experiencing? So this is my, like, middle school mind. This is how it works. So you're sitting there, uh, you're, in a, you're in a dark room, unfamiliar, all by yourself, total darkness, and you don't know where you are. You have no idea who you are. The door opens, kind of creaks a little bit, and somebody steps into the room and closes the door. You're, you're starting to think, right? Like, I'm, this is where I was going. Like, I'm thinking about Leatherface, like Texas Jameson Massacre, Jason, Friday the 13th. Like, I'm, my mind is going to some dark places. Um, but if you can get to that place, you might understand. Like, these guys are terrified at this moment. They're really, they're that scared. The person closes the door. You're thinking at any moment you're going to hear the sound of a starting chainsaw. Like, this is where I'm going, you know? Um, and instead, what you hear is something totally different. Instead, the door closes. You're in total darkness with a complete stranger. And what you hear is like, don't worry, it's just me, a familiar voice. That's what you hear instead of wherever it was that your mind would go, or my, I told you where mine goes. Um, it's, Jesus says, it is I. That's what the scripture said. The literal translation this is super important. The literal translation is I am. I am. Alright? Why is that important? Anybody remember where I am comes from? What it means in the Bible? Anyone want to 
Just shout it out. Okay? Says, says, says what? What's, do you want to I am that I am. Okay. I am that I am. Moses wants to know the name of God. Moses asks, and God says, I am who I am. The name of God, I am who I am. And I think we're on to something. Who is this Jesus that feeds the 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fishes? I am who I am. I am is the one feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Who is the Jesus who can walk on the sea? I am. That's who's walking on the sea. It kind of literally, it should read maybe something like this. Like, don't worry, the God who creates the universe, the God who created the universe, the one, is the one who's right here in the boat with you. The one who fed the Israelites, this is the connection that I think he's trying to make, the one who fed the Israelites in the wilderness, the one who is also with you now in the boat, I am. And so think about this, this storm, Jesus doesn't call him the storm, it's the storm that actually reveals who Jesus is. This is super important, just like the cross will ultimately reveal who Jesus is. So we have this little comparison, they think this is like the Moses that's expected to come, right? Here, listen to this about Moses and Jesus. Moses speaks directly with God, he received God's name, he saw God's backside, remember that one? That was a good one. Um, he received the Ten Commandments. He leads them through the wilderness. He brings the plagues on Pharaoh. We're talking about one of the greatest human resumes of all time. Moses needs God to provide manna, and Jesus what? Provides it himself. Moses needs God to part the Red Sea. Jesus walks on the sea himself. The crowds want to make Jesus their king, but what they should be doing is they should be recognizing him as God. This is what's happening. And so, like, there's a bunch of directions that we could go to finish. And I decided to go, like, the offensive route. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. The greatest living, in my mind, reformed Bible scholar, Dale Bruner, said something that just got me thinking. And it's just, like, one of those sentences that is going to irritate everyone, which is probably why we're going to use it. And this is what he said. He said that Jesus balances the liberal value of social justice with the conservative value of divine worship. And I read that, and I started thinking about, what does he mean? What does he mean by this? And it really got me thinking. Because this is the stuff that we split over. This is the stuff that Christians have been splitting over forever and ever and ever. One story two kind of two stories converging into one thing, and we see both of these things come out of this story, that without one or the other, this story is incomplete. We have a hard time talking to each other about this stuff. <laughs> like, this is relevant and important stuff, and we see both of these things at play within this story. Jesus feeding the 5,000 shows this genuine concern for real human needs, right? He doesn't want people to go hungry. He doesn't want to see food go to waste. This is extremely important. Did you, this, these statistics are mind-boggling to me. 47 million Americans go hungry every day, 47 million. How about this one? When people are surveyed about hunger, 40% of them actually say that they have to make a decision in their life between eating and paying their rent. How brutal is that? Now, most people then look at our community here and they say, well, yeah, but that's not that big a deal here in our community. And I say, think again, 
because these are the statistics from our own food bank right here that some of us volunteer in and work we all contribute to. Manna says that there's 15,000 households right here in our community that are considered food insecure. 15,000. Food is a, is a problem here. They serve 14, over 1,400 people a month. And they say that one in three children in the Canal Valley live in poverty. One in three children in the Canal Valley, one of the wealthier places around, live in poverty. Like, I, I look at this, and then I look at this passage, and I put them side by side, and I'm like, Jesus has to be horrified to see one of the wealthiest communities in the world, and here among us are people that are hungry and suffering. And Jesus doesn't, this is really important, like, we, we see both of these things in the story. These, Jesus doesn't just want to save people, he wants to feed them too. This comes directly out of this scripture and a thousand other ones that we could have talked about. Now, this is what I was struck with, the command to collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Anybody waste food in here? I do. I used to work with a guy from Kenya. His name is Moses Boulay. A few of you have met him. Moses was getting a PhD in systematic theology, right? This guy has a photographic memory. He's brilliant. He's from the Maasai tribe in Kenya. He grew up, like, with spears, hunting. I mean, he, this guy is absolutely incredible. And he comes here and he works with me in middle school ministry. Like, what a combination. Like, systematic theology PhD is working with me with a bunch of middle school kids. And I learned something right away about Moses. When we had food, he would, he would get angry if any food was thrown away. When I say angry, I mean angry. It was unacceptable. You, you don't throw food away. He's, he just wouldn't stand for it. And he would say, I've seen too many hungry people in my lifetime. You were not throwing food away. And it's like, we, you know, you'll hear people joke today, especially te- trying to teach their kids. What do they say? They say, eat what's on your plate because they're starving kids in Africa. This is what we say. Moses knows the names of those kids. Like, this is, you know, he knows those people. We have them right here. And every time we had extra food, we, it was a hassle, trust me. He would make us, we would have to drive the food to a shelter, or somebody would have to agree to take it home. Because just like Jesus said, nothing could be wasted. Now, leftovers, you know, leftovers, the ultimate sign of God. If food is a sign of God's abundance, what are leftovers? Think about it. The abundance of the abundance, Right? Like, we have so much food, we have leftover food. And what do we do with it? Toss it. Like, I, have a, I compost because I garden. Um, that's like our little thing that we try to do to make a little bit of a difference, but we still we throw away a lot of food. Uh, this passage really made me think a lot about that. Because what does it say about what Jesus says? So anyway, we'll finish with this. I believe our passage makes one thing abundantly clear, right? Jesus is looking for people with just a tiny bit of faith, not excuses. And so we'll say things like, we say them all the time, I do too, like if I just had whatever, fill in the blank, I'd open up my heart a little bit more. I'd open up my hands a little bit more. I'd be a little bit more generous with people in need. But what this passage says is that we all have something to give, just five loaves and two fish. And Jesus does the rest. So the next three weeks of scripture are all about food. This is, some people call it like Jesus' bread sermon. Um, I've been inspired by these texts, and Nana has a grow-a-row program, so for anybody who actually grows vegetables, grows food, 
Um, they don't grow a real program, and so we kind of decided that at least 10% of the vegetables that we grow are going to go to food insecure families in the Pinot Valley. Um, and so just a couple weeks ago, they got my first batch of organic green beans. I was like super proud of them. It, really cool. it made me really happy to, to give those up. I thought it was awesome. But if anyone does that, it's a really fun thing that they're doing. And so the last thing is this that made me think, not only can we give food to those who are hungry, but if you want to take this further, we have this biblical theme that's important, I think, here. You can make this jump pretty easily. We have this biblical theme that we would call welcoming of the stranger. How, do the, how does food and the stranger connect, right? We have this theme running through the Bible. I think that not only we share our food, but maybe we're being asked to share our table as well. Where we eat, we gather around our table, right? It's hospitality. We gather around the table. That's where we enjoy God's provision, God's abundance. And I wonder if we're not only just being called to open up our hearts and our hands, but I wonder if we're being called to open up our tables as well. Maybe harder to do. Maybe we ought to think about, you know, like who we are sharing our tables with. Who are we sharing God's abundance with? To me, that's where my mind goes as some practical stuff that comes out of this text that's super challenging. So the last thing is, what, we never talk about the little boy, too. Maybe he serves as kind of like a thoughtful example. We bring what little we have, a little faith, a little bread, a few fish. We learn to open up our hearts. We learn to open up our hands and let go of some of our stuff, our resources. Then maybe we open up our homes and our tables as well. And then we invite Jesus to do the rest. That's what I learned I came to out of this. Let's pray.